All right, welcome back. This is Patents 2 Part 1, and we're in the textbook. Um, basically, at uh, the pages before page uh, 711 in the readings for this week. So last week we looked at, right, the various requirements that you need for a patent, right? The first one, which is the one that we looked at um, in, in great detail last week, was patentable subject matter, right? And so we said you have to have patentable subject matter for you to get a patent. And then we looked at the various, I think there were six or eight now categories of things under the Act that are recognized as patentable subject matter. Then, right, this week, we're going to look at what is non-patentable subject matter. In other words, we're going to look at the various exclusions to what we said last week, right? So there's two types of exclusions. First, of course, right, the things that are not part of the list that we um, looked at last week are not patentable subject matter. And so the list is limitative, right? So if you don't fall under one of those categories, you don't get a patent. But we're going to see that there's a further limitation to what you can get a patent on. And these are things that are either under the Act or under the ways courts have interpreted the Act specifically excluded. So even though they might fall under you know, one of the categories we looked at last week, and as we said, some of them are very broad, right? One of them is composition of matter. As we said, that is very broad, basically, you know, sets of atoms. So therefore, we need an exclusion for things that even though they may fall under the various categories we looked at last week, the government doesn't want you to get a patent on. And that's what we're going to cover under non-patentable subject matter. So exclusions to the categories we looked at last week. Then there are the other requirements, right? Because this is we, we, we're, we are and we have spent a lot of time on what is patentable subject matter. That's not the only criterion, right? Basically, the whole point of a patent is you have to have invented something. And therefore, right, even though the thing that you claim to have invented falls under the categories we said you can get a patent on, you still have to have invented it, right? And so we have these other characteristics, which are less complex and so which we look at in less detail, but which are still, you know, cumulative and mandatory and important, right? And these are, there are three, right? It has to be new, so novel, right? It has to be useful, and as we said, that essentially means commercially useful. It has to be something that people are willing to give you money for because they find that it will be useful to them. That doesn't mean, of course, that it has to, you know, necessarily make a lot of money, right? So you can have something that's potentially useful that people are going to buy, but that you might have limited commercial success in. And because that's not the test, at least not directly, right? That doesn't matter. What matters is you have to have something that has the potential, the clear potential to provide value to people such that they're willing to give you their money. And then the last one is non-obvious. So it has to be novel, useful, and non-obvious. Non-obvious meaning it's not something that a normal, a, a reasonable person skilled in the art would have come up with on their own. Because of course, if they could have come up with it on their own and it's therefore obvious, well then as a result, it's not something that you've invented, right? It's something that anyone could have come up with and therefore that we can't really categorize as an invention. And as we said, the standard for these things generally, and especially for obviousness, is the posita, right? The, the person reasonably skilled in the art, the posita, right? And so how do we look at whether something is obvious? Who is it obvious to, right? It's not just the reasonable person, which we find elsewhere in the law. It's not just that, you know, normal, prudent person walking down the street. It's a person that's more of an expert. It's the person reasonably skilled in the art. Or as the acronym says, the person ordinarily skilled in the art. And what's the art? You know, the, the, the thing you're making more generally, right? So if I'm making a snowmobile, someone that's either skilled in snowmobiles or, you know, amphibious vehicles. And, you know, that 
a reasonable version of that person, right? Perhaps the average but prudent person, right? Will be the one that we're going to use, right? Whose knowledge we're going to use to assess whether you meet these criteria. So last week we looked at patentable subject matter. As I said, now we're going to look in greater detail at what is non-patentable subject matter, right? So things that don't fall under the definition of what you can patent under section two of the Patents Act, right? The book calls it non-statutory subject matter. That's the same thing, right? Matter that does not fall within the, the specific, um, you know, the, the specific definition as provided at section two of the act. And so what is non-patentable subject matter, right? Well, as you're told, there is one thing, right? There's only one thing that is specifically excluded, right? That the act says, this is something that you specifically cannot get a patent on. And as a result, it's pretty clear. And that is, um, we'll call it a mere scientific principle or theorem, right? And we looked at last week, of course, that things have to be specific for you to get a patent on them, right? And we said that there's this odd exclusion called the business methods exclusion, which is if you have a way to run your HR department, that's not something that you can get a patent on. And why is that? Because it's too general, right? Because it's too general, really in two ways. First, right, because it's general, it's going to restrict a great deal what other people can do. And that's something that we don't want under the act, right? We don't want something that is too limitative to you know, the rights of other people. And the other reason is because we want people to come up with their own stuff. And so whatever we wall in, right? Whatever we, we put as you being the only person that can use it, is not just something that people cannot use without paying you rent for it. It's also things that people cannot use to come up with their own stuff without paying you rent for it. And therefore, in the Patents Act, we're gonna be very careful to limit that. And a corollary of that, of course, is that if you get a bigger lawn, if there's more things that are walled in, then you make more money. And we'll look at money a great deal this week. But the basic bargain, as you'll recall, is this public policy balance, right? We want people to tell us what they've invented because it's good for society. As I said, it's good because people can use it and people can come up with their own stuff and therefore advance civilization, which is something that we think is a socially useful um, goal to have in society. And the way we do that, the way we affect that disclosure, the way we you know, force you to disclose your thing is we tell you, well, we'll protect you. You don't have to worry about someone stealing your idea. As a matter of fact, there's more than that, right? You don't have to worry about anyone stealing your idea or anyone using your idea or your invention, right? I'm not suggesting that an idea in a broad sense is patentable, but your, your idea, your invention, right, for 20 years. No one can make it. And therefore, you're going to make some money. Well, of course, if we increase the size of your lawn, if we protect something that is broader, like a business method, the problem becomes that you get a monopoly over a lot of things. And not only is that bad in terms of people using it, as I said, it's also bad because you make too much money. And to some extent, as we'll see, you making too much money sometimes is really okay and intended under the Patents Act. But you making too much money all of the time is not something that's intended under the Patents Act. And so if we have a category like a business method, it's not just, you know, someone's going to invest a someone's going to invent a drug for cancer for cholesterol and they're going to make a disproportionate amount of money, right? That doesn't really justify innovation, right? You're not going to invest $10 million, $50 million into inventing a drug thinking you're going to make a billion, right? At least it's not a necessary incentive. 
But that's this one drug, right? It's a byproduct of the regime, but it's not a direct consequence of it. However, with something like a business method, you're protecting something broader all of the time. And every time you're going to have a business method, your lawn is going to be big. The stuff that you can prevent other people to do by virtue of your monopoly is going to be very broad. And that's something that we don't intend under the act, because that's people making too much money all of the time, all of the time under this specific definition, under this specific type of patentable or non-patentable subject matter. Right. The other thing about this is, oftentimes, when something is too generic, you will not have invented it, right? So the exception is called a mere scientific principle or theorem. That means two things. First, it means something that's just too broad, right? The idea of having a one-click button in the Amazon case, that's too broad. It's okay as applied to the website or as applied to a website, then it's specific and that's okay, right? We don't want it to be too broad, as I said. And therefore, if you have a principle, right, like I, I'm trying to patent the fill way to manage your HR department, that is too broad. And as a result, right, it's something that the act doesn't protect. It has to be more specific. I can have Phil's unique way of making a snowmobile, and there's a product, right, which, as we said, doesn't have to be physical, doesn't even have to be a product, but still more specific, right? Phil's way to make a snowmobile, right, and that's basically a way to make it that's so much better than everyone else and that can only yield the product, right, the specific product in that way, and that's going to be protected because it's gone beyond a broad principle, right? Phil's way to make a snowmobile, as applied there, is more specific than Phil's way to run an HR department, any HR department, right? The other thing about the mere scientific principle, so we'll put it down as specific. It has to be specific enough, right? The other thing is, right, it has to be really an invention. And we'll see that there's a distinction between you inventing something and you finding something that already exists. And I don't know if that distinction actually exists, right? It's, you can debate whether or not you believe that, that that distinction exists, but the court and the law say that it does exist. You have to have invented something. And so, right, if I take steel and a bunch of other naturally occurring materials and I make a snowmobile, then I've invented something and that's protected under the act. There's a distinction between that, right, and me observing something and coming up with a principle that is really naturally occurring. So when I've made my snowmobile, right, I've made something new, right? The world didn't have snowmobile before. You couldn't go take a walk in the woods and find a snowmobile because it's not naturally occurring. In contrast, if you find, right, that gravity exists, right, and it's this great innovation because you find it you know, things fall depending on their mass, and there's a reason for that. Well, you found that, but it was true before, right? You've described it, but it was true before, right? Things didn't start falling according to their, at a speed according to their mass because you said so. In fact, they did before, and they did after, and in the meantime, you just, you know, realized it and described it with a formula. And even though you invented the formula, right, the fact that things comport themselves according to your formula is really a product of nature. And that's something that the Act is going to say you cannot protect. And so under this exception of the mere scientific theorem or, or principle, what we exclude as well, right, are things that you found but did not invent things that you, you know, found that were naturally occurring in nature. And these are basically the important concepts that we're going to look at in a little bit more detail. As I said under Section 27.8 of the Patents Act, right, this exception is the only one that exists, right? It's the only one that is specific, where the government doesn't just say, right, this thing, you know, might not be categorized as, as patentable subject matter, or, or the government says this is the limit of this criterion, this is the limit of this container, right? This is the only specific one where the government says 
this is not covered. And so it, it may fall under the categories we looked at last week, most notably an art or a process, but right, it's not protected. Because section 27.8 says it's not protected. Section 27.8 says you cannot get a patent on a mere scientific principle or theorem. And the court says, right, you're given the, these, the Supreme Court of the United States jurisprudence as to basically um, many of the things that I've just said. And one of them is that, of course, it has to be an invention, it has to be specific. So the Supreme Court of the United States says there's two steps to the analysis, and that's correct also, generally speaking, under Canadian law. The first one is to look at, of course, whether you have a mere scientific principle or theorem. There's a second step that says, does it get more specific such that you fall beyond the prohibition? And really that's just a way of expressing what I said last week. What I said last week, I gave you this, these you know, broad working definitions of a process and an art, right? Basically ways to make things, ways to come up with things, ways to make things work with a specific objective or by producing a specific end product, right? And of course we said, the, the, the operative criterion is not that you came up with a way to make something, right? It's that you came up for a way to make something specific. It is specific enough such that it's protected, right? Phil's way of making a snowmobile, for instance, not Phil's way of making any vehicle or running an HR department. And so the Supreme Court of the United States says where a scientific principle or theorem is specifically applied, in some way, right? Specifically apply to make something, to yield a product, whatever it is, right? Then it gets specific enough to be protected. And even though they, they enunciate it here, it really falls under what I said last week because it just falls under the normal definition of patentable subject matter, which includes an art or a process. And what's an art or a process? Essentially, it is a, a, a theory, a principle, right? A way to do something as applied specifically in the case of Amazon, right? Not just the concept of having a button on your website that lets people buy every time, right? That concept's too broad. But when it gets specific enough, right? It is, we make this true specifically by having a button on our website that stores cookies about people's information and then recopies that information invisibly and then as a result, people can buy. And so it's applied and it's specific to the website and then it becomes specific enough to be protected. And as a result, as I said, that also you know, determines the size of your lawn, the size of what you can claim other people cannot do. And so as a result, Amazon is not protected for anyone making a one-click button or one-click something. Amazon only has a monopoly on what it's invented, which is a way to store your information in a cookie and then recopy it, use the cookie to recopy your information such that the customer on the website, right, it doesn't have to be Amazon's website, obviously that'd be a bit narrow, but on a website, right, has a more enjoyable experience and buys things faster. And then there's this distinction, which we're gonna look at in, um, in great detail right, about what, when and where life is or is not protected under the act, right? And basically in Canada, we have this, this, um, this distinction, which we looked at earlier, which is not that clear between a higher and a lower life form. When I say it's not clear, right, there's, there, there are two ways really that it's not that clear. The first way, of course, is where the line is drawn. A human being is a higher life form. So even though it's alive, it's too complex for it to be protected as a patent, right? For you to get a patent on a human being or a way to make a human being. And the other end of the spectrum, some things are just very broad, right? Inventing a molecule as applied to treat cancer. Well then of course that's, that might be a life or not, but 
you know, it's not something that, that we can categorize a, as a higher life form. Yeast, right? Having a bacteria that, you know, makes milk, for instance, well, that could be protected because there's no public policy concern that should prevent people from owning bacteria, right? As opposed to human beings. Then, of course, between that, there's a very broad range of things where it's not really clear what is a higher life form or a lower life form, right? And, and it has to do, even though it's not that clear, what, what the Supreme Court says is a sentient being. So at some point on the spectrum, the Supreme Court says, right, you're alive, right? You have a conscience, and as a result, you're not patentable. But it's really not clear. It's up to debate, right? It was in 2002 when the Supreme Court decided the case, and it still is today as to what is alive, what has a conscience, what is a sentient being, and what is not. As a result, one of the things that you can protect is, um, is, is a seed, right? So a GMO, a GMO is something that you can protect because you're inventing it, right? So if you're taking a banana and then you're modifying the banana's DNA such that it's a better banana, right? It's a banana that's more commercially useful. It, it is ripened faster, right? Or it, it, it is you know, easier to ripen with um, with nitrogen in your factory, right? You've invented that. You've invented a new type of banana. Then a banana is probably not a higher life form such that it's protected under the act or it's potentially protected under the act. And it meets the other criteria. As I said, it's new, it's useful, commercially useful because you're going to make more money because you're going to be able to have your banana ripen faster, be able to ripen your banana with nitrogen in a factory. And it's non-obvious, right? Because no one came up with it before. You had to have these very smart people in a lab, which you paid a lot of money to invent this banana. And we haven't had it in 2000 years precisely because it is new, because you've invented it. And it's therefore not obvious, again, to the posita, to the average scientist. And the reason it's not obvious is because no average scientist has come up with it yet. Another concern that you're introduced to very broadly, right, is um, this idea of something being too small within, right, within human nature, right? So one of the reasons that we don't protect, right, that we may or may not protect genes is how specific it is. So if you invent a new banana that's a sequence of genes, you can claim protection on that. But at some point it gets so specific that it's not protected, generally because it doesn't meet the other criteria. So a specific gene, right, in itself would not be protected. And again, that gets us back to this rationale of, of something being too general. If you can protect a specific gene that's found in a bunch of things, right, then you can prevent all these people from using your thing. And that's bad because A, it prevents innovation. It prevents people from using your thing either because you don't let them or because they have to pay you rent. And as a result, also, it, it prevents people from coming up with their own stuff, at least to some extent. And second, it is unfair because it makes your lawn too big, because it's not the purpose of the Patent Act to systematically overcompensate you by letting you claim that you own a gene, right, a necessary gene to a bunch of things, and therefore be able to charge these people. That doesn't reward you for your invention. It rewards you for something that's too specific, and it also rewards you for something that you've not really invented because at some point it gets, again, so specific that you cannot be deemed to have invented it. Then at page 674, right, you're given the example of the Amazon case, which applies what I've just said. I've said it before, right? Amazon was not claiming a monopoly over a one-click button. That would not have been allowed. It was claiming a monopoly over a one-click button, right, as specifically implemented in the way Amazon did, with cookies that recopied your information, therefore solved the problem. And it was, again, new because no one came up with it yet. It was useful because it met the pro it, 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 you know, met its purpose. And as we said last week, of course, that was 2011 and it was invented much earlier, right? So it wasn't as obvious as it might have been today. At the time, there was a concern with people 
not buying because there was too much friction. So people bought something, they wanted to buy an extra one and said, oh crap, I didn't buy two, I wanna buy a second one. And there was a lot of friction involved in that. They had to redo every step in the process. And human beings, right, tend not to like un unnecessary effort. And therefore, what did people do? Every time you add a step in their way, right, that's one more chance that people are just gonna say, screw it, I'm not gonna buy, it's too much trouble, I'm just gonna go you know, watch TV instead. And therefore, Amazon came up with a one-click button to solve that problem. Basically, to make more money. To make sure that people, it was easier for people to buy, and therefore, that fewer people did not buy. And that was useful, was commercially useful, right? Commercially useful in finding a way for Amazon to make more money. For a company, that's generally useful. And it was non-obvious again for the reasons we said because Amazon came up with it, no one did before, and no one had really found a solution on an e-commerce website to reduce this problem that Amazon identified of friction, you know, preventing customers from doing what they wanted to do. And that applies, as I said, this idea that it has to be specific. So the idea of a one-click button is a broad abstract idea, and that's not protected under the act. Why was it protected? Because it was specific. It was as implemented, right? And that's what made it protected. And then as we said, right, you go through these various levels in the Amazon case. First, the patent examiner says, no, that's not protected. Then it goes to the federal court. The federal court, Justice Phelan says, oh, wait, you know, the, the, the patent commissioner had this exclusion that was too broad. So, the answer is not, it's not protected, it's, it might not be protected. And why might it not be protected? What Justice Phelan says, it, it has to have a specific physical impact, right? So in making it specific, it has to have an impact, your theorem, your idea, your broad principle, has to have an impact on a thing. Then it went up to the Federal Court of Appeal. Federal Court of Appeal said the same thing as the Federal Court. Pan Commissioner was wrong by saying no, no, no. The answer was maybe, yes, maybe, no. But Justice Phelan was also wrong because Justice Phelan says it's no if it's not on a physical thing. And the Federal Court of Appeal said, no, that's not correct, Justice Phelan, you got this wrong. It's not an exclusion that exists, it is too narrow. In fact, you might have an impact on something that is neither physical nor a thing. So not even a virtual thing, not even a thing. It could be specific in some other way. And that's basically what the Federal Court of Appeal says. But basically, right, what comes out of this decision is that it has to have a, a, a use or an, imp, or, or an impact, right, that makes it specific. The court calls it, right, a practical application. So not just your broad idea, your broad idea is applied to do something, make something specific, right, an application as the court says. That's the first thing, right? A mere scientific principle or theorem. The second one is, right, professional art. A bit stuck here. Um, but basically, right, another exclusion, another thing that is not patentable subject matter is a professional art. And so as we said, right, we don't look at the cases on this. It's not that important. The court says, uh, the courts say, right, not all arts are protected. So we said an art or process is really a way to make something, right? You come up with this brand new way to make a snowmobile that is far more efficient in the competition. That's new because no one's come up with it yet. And other requirements, of course, it's commercially useful because it's so much more efficient that you're gonna make a lot of money. And the main goal of businesses in a capitalistic society is to make money and therefore that's useful to a business. Well, it's not all arts that are protected. The court says professional, the courts say professional arts are not protected, right? Why is that? Right, and so we'll just put a number here. Higher life form is the third thing that is non-patentable subject matter. So back to this, right? Professional arts. The courts say, right, a physical art is protected, right? What's a physical art, right? Let's say a way to make a snowmobile, it's physical that's protected. The court says professional arts are not protected. What if you come up with a language 
for lawyers, right? You come up with a way to name things such that laws are better applied. It's not protect because it's a professional art. It's a language for lawyers, for professionals, and therefore it's not protected. Or a way to work for lawyers would also not be protected. But again, we don't look at that in great detail, so this is as far as you need to know. This is as much as you need to know. The third thing that is non-patentable subject matter, and again, that's the thing that is not excluded specifically in the act, right? So there's a section, section 27, which says specifically mere scientific principles and theorems are not protected. There is no such provision for anything else. That is the only explicitly excluded category. Some other categories are excluded by virtue of other things, and these include professional arts because courts said so. Even though it wasn't written in the act, the court interpreted the act such that an exception came to existence for reasons that are, don't really matter here, right? Either because it wasn't an art, the court says the definition of an art is limited in scope or in specificity or something else. The third thing is a higher life form. And we're going to look at, of course, why that might be wrong. So we looked at the Harvard Mouse case, right, which was this case where Harvard College, right, came up with a new mouse. They, they genetically modified a mouse and they've invented it. And prima facie, that's something that's protected because they've invented it, right? Like a seed, you invent a new type of banana, commercially useful, novel, so forth, then it's protected. Well, what if it's a mouse? Well, prima facie, it's the exact same thing. Mouse might be bigger, more complex, right? You, may, you might speculate as to whether a mouse is a conscience, but the act doesn't say that. The act says these are the criteria, and a mouse is ostensibly a composition of matter, right? The way to make the mouse is ostensibly a process or an art, and therefore both the way to make it and the resulting product might be protected if they otherwise meet the criteria, which are has to be novel and non-obvious, right? So you've invented it, and you've invented it in a way that was not obvious to the posita, and it's useful, generally commercially useful. So the mouse you've invented has the potential, generally speaking, you know, usual way to be useful, by making companies make more money. Or, as we'll see in that case, by curing cancer, which is a great way to make money, because you're providing a socially useful thing, right, by curing everyone's cancer, and as a result, people are willing to give you money for that, and you're going to make a lot of money. So even though you might say that curing cancer is, you know, an intrinsically valuable social goal, and you'll be right, it's also an economic one, right? The company provides a solution that is useful in that it cures cancer, and as a result, people are willing to give the company money for it. It's useful for the company, right, as well, because the company makes a lot of money, as we said, right? The way to assess whether you provide something useful to people is generally by assessing whether people in the marketplace are, are likely to buy it. As I said, we don't assess specifically whether you're going to make enough money to cover your costs or whatever, but we assess whether it's reasonably likely that people are going to give you money for it. So why is it that the Harvard mouse is not protected, right? There's a lot of reasons. We looked at the, the dissent and the majority, um, I think, last week, right? It would have been last week, yes. And we said, right, the, the, the majority said the Harvard mouse is not protected. And why is that? The court says because there's a distinction between a higher and a lower life form. A mouse is a higher life form. It's more tantamount to a complex human being than it is to yeast or to a seed or to a plant even. And as a result, right, it's not protected because something mystical happens along the way. We, we saw that the, the explanation was really not clear, but there's basically two you know, components to it as far as we can understand it. The first is a moral consideration, right? The mouse is not like a seed, it's a sentient being. When you hurt it, it hurts, right? It has a conscience, it might even be afraid to die. That's why we don't do human, we don't do human or animal cruelty, right? But we don't really care about plant cruelty. 
or seed cruelty or yeast cruelty or milk cruelty, right? That's one of the reasons. It's a sentient being and therefore that's what makes it the higher life form that should not be protected under the act, right? Of course, as a result of that, right, the, the court says you may not have invented it because the miracle of life happens. Because you need, you know, even though you've invented the, the, the genetic makeup of the mouse and you have to have, you know, mice procreate, right? And then, of course, it's no longer your invention. That's what the majority says. That's why they say it's not protected because in between the miracle of life happens. Because in between, right, the mice procreated and yielded your mouse and your mouse is not much the result of you having changed the genetic makeup as much as it is the miracle of life has affected between the two mice which is not your responsibility and is not your invention right it's not something that you caused or invented and we'll look at this week the dissenting opinion in greater detail right in the Harvard mouse case. And we'll see that the, the, the dissent in that case, Justice Binney, I think, right, is really unhappy with this, right? Yes, it is Justice Binney. And it's a 5-4 decision. It's pretty close, right? It was one vote close to being the exact opposite, to everything being presumptively protectable. That doesn't mean that every higher life form would have been protected. You'd still have had these various criteria and exclusions, but there wouldn't have been a blanket prohibition by the Supreme Court saying a higher life form, that's out of reach. It's out of the lawn, right? It's something that even though you meet all these criteria, even though it's the same thing as something else that meets all these criteria, like a seed, as I said, or a plant, it's not protected regardless. There's nothing you can do to make it protected. Even though you're nice, even though you meet the criteria, even though you help cure cancer, doesn't matter, never protected. So it was one vote close to being the exact opposite, to this blanket prohibition, this blanket exclusion not existing. And so, as I said, not to, for all higher life forms to be protectable, but for higher life forms, all higher life forms to be potentially protectable as long as you meet the other criteria. And as we'll see, the dissenting judges are mad, right? The dissenting judges are saying, you made that up, it made no sense, it wasn't in the act, right? It, it, it's really awful because then you legislated from the bench, it doesn't make sense, the justification you gave, right? The distinction between a higher and lower life form, as I said, is just bizarre, nonsensical, is, a, is an illusory distinction, and therefore you shouldn't have decided that way. And we'll see the dissent has some very interesting opinions. And of course, these things are not the law because these judges ultimately did not win, right? Did not win the tug of war. They were in the minority and as a result, right, that's not the law. But there are still some very interesting issues, some broader issues about intellectual property law that are, that are invoked by the dissent that remain interesting, right? The debates, the underlying debates, regardless of how the court, you know, positions itself on, on, on them, right, are important and existing debates in intellectual property law. And second, the policy considerations are as well true and important, right? Even though the court might say this policy consideration about, you know, protecting human life, not commodifying human life, or the opposite, right? Promoting innovation. Even though the court might say, right, I'm applying this to say that the law says X, right? The position is not important as much as the underlying policy consideration. And regardless of the position, it is true that the law is interested in promoting innovation and, you know, according to the majority at least, not commodifying human life. One of the things, of course, that the, the minority is going to um, emphasize by poking holes in the, in the majority opinion is, of course, what's this distinction between a lower and a higher life form? Second, where does it come from? Right? Judges don't make things up, they find them. And they find them by looking at the law, at the, at the legislative text and the intent behind it. And if they copied it from the states, what the intent was in the states. They don't just make things up as to, you know, what their political preferences are, at least they shouldn't, right? 
The minority is going to say, right, you made up this distinction between a higher and lower life form. It wasn't in the patent stack. You made it up, and that's evil. Then the majority is going to look at some very, the minority, sorry, is going to look at some very interesting aspects, of course, of what innovation means, right? Of what, of course, um, the, the very purpose of the Patents Act is, and that is to promote innovation. And we'll see this tremendous power of money. The way we get people to do things is money. And so we saw in a, in a very specific sense that intellectual property so far has been very concerned with money, right? Generally, what we give you is a commercial monopoly. And what's a commercial monopoly? It means you, you're the only person who can sell something. And as a result, you're going to make more money than if you had competitors. And you have a monopoly. That also means that you can prevent people from using something unless they pay you money. And that seems somewhat, you know, odd, right? Why is it that money plays such an important role in the law or in intellectual property law? You'd argue, I'd argue, that it also plays a role more broadly in the law that is disproportionate, right? When you go to court, regardless of how awful what someone did to you was, the thing you get is money, right? If your legs are severed, you don't get your legs back or any legs back, you get money. If someone destroyed your reputation, you don't get your reputation back, you get money, right? Money is rightly or wrongly generally what the law allocates. And that's especially true in intellectual property law because it's concerned with monopolies and monopolies are about you making more money than if you had competitors. And the, 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 major, the minority, right, the dissenting opinion by Justice Binney, which we're going to look at, which includes the then and, and until very, um, very until um, I think last year or the previous year, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice McLaughlin, right, they're going to poke holes in the opinion of the majority. And they're going to, I think, have a discussion of this role of money that is both explicit and interesting. And so the court isn't going to shy away from this. The court's going to say, yes, what we do is get companies generally and big companies, right, to make a lot of money. And we admit that. And that's the purpose of the Patents Act. And that's good because. And the because, of course, is it gets people, companies, to do socially favorable things, like invent, you know, life-saving cures, right? Or invent things that change our lives, like computers, even though they might not affect our health. And what's interesting as well, of course, is that, you know, even though you might think that protecting life, you know, protecting a mouse is something that is somewhat right-leaning, right? Not having a prohibition on that, not focusing on sentient beings as much as we focus on, you know, commercial interests and innovation at all costs is a right-leaning principle. You'd be surprised to see that the list of judges that we have there are not the most right-leaning, especially not Chief Justice McLaughlin. And so they have reasons that go beyond, you know, political reasons. They have reasons that they think are both morally right and socially viable. Whether there are reasons about what patents are for, what innovation is, how people, in, how people innovate in society, or whether they're about what the proper role of the court is in this broader system of people who make rules, people who apply rules, and people who are subject to rules. Right? The courts being just one you know, aspect of that. And so the dissenting opinion, again, none of this is the law, but it's interesting, right? The, the dissenting opinion says a biotechnology revolution, so innovation with life, seeds, right, new animals, new, new bananas, right, the, the Harvard mouse, right, the biotechnology revolution over the past 50 years has, has been fueled by extraordinary human ingenuity and, very crudely, financed insignificant barred by, by private investment. It wouldn't have happened if companies didn't put a lot of money into it because it costs money. And why did they do that? Because they knew it was very likely they would make more money than they've invested, right? And so the court says, the court directly ties this favorable social outcome with money. 
with the monopoly granted by the act. And the court says, right, we don't do monopolies to reward people, to pat them on the back and say, good job, you've invented something, now go retire in Florida, right? We do that so people innovate in the first place. And it's a necessary condition. The court ties it to the courts. The, the court says, right, the, I shouldn't say the court, the minority of the court says, right, it happened because of the money. The money is the reason people invented, you know, life-saving things. And for us to get future benefits from that, we got to be careful, but we also got to make sure that, that, that there is innovation. Then the court says something very interesting, right? And again, this is a Harvard mouse case, right? This is a case where Harvard invents a mouse that's genetically modified. So they change the genetic makeup, then the mice procreate, then you have a new mouse, and what does it do, right? It gets cancer. And it gets cancer in a way that's similar to a human being, I think because it's more susceptible to it, right? So like a human being, you don't have to expose it to tons of cancer, right, for it to get cancer, and that replicates basically the way humans get cancer. And as a result, it's something that can help us better prevent cancer in human beings. And so it's new because it's better. No one came up with it. And it's useful because you're going to invent a cure for cancer. You're, you're going to be able to test things that might be cures for various diseases and illnesses. And therefore, you're going to make money. People are going to give you their money for that. And the court says, very interestingly, that the legislation on this in Canada is not that different from elsewhere. So the court says, right, these Harvard people, right, they're smart. They went all around the world and they said, we invented this mouse, right? And this is great because we're going to finance our Ivy League University for the rest of eternity with that mouse. And they got that patent in a lot of countries. You're given a list that basically includes every developed country. country. But in Canada, right, the majority said, no, 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 this is a higher life form. There's something mystical that happens along the way as the mice procreate that makes your Harvard mouse not protectable, not patentable subject matter, excluded subject matter, right? And again, it's not in the act. And the, the minority is going to emphasize that. The minority is going to say, whoa, why is it that everyone gives Harvard a patent and Canada doesn't? Why is it that my friends in the majority don't? There must be something specific in the act. There must be a section that says there's a distinction between a higher and a lower life form and the higher one is not protected. Or at least something that says, right, we, we let judges consider moral imperatives. We let judges say, right, there should be a distinction with a higher life form because that's moral, because it's morally wrong to protect a higher life form. And this, the minority says, in, in, in fact, there's none of that. In fact, the majority had to go by the back door and say, well, it's not really your invention. It's not really novel because you didn't invent the mouse. You just invented the gene and then the mice procreated. And then that's not as much your fault as it is the you know, magic of human life. And in fact, the court went for, the majority went further than that. They said, you might protect the genetic sequence, but not the mouse. But of course, the only use of the genetic sequence is to get the mouse, right? And so it's not much use to Harvard. The court says, in fact, the legislation in Canada on this issue is essentially the same as elsewhere. In fact, it's the exact same as the U.S., and that's why when we had to interpret the Patents Act the first time around, we looked at the U.S. Because we figured, you know, if Canada, when they wrote, when the legislators wrote the law, thought it was fit to copy what the U.S. did, it's probably because, you know, they thought it was a good idea. And therefore, what the U.S. courts have said on what these words mean is relevant because they're the same words and should ostensibly be interpreted the same way. But more importantly, because... The legislators thought, thought that it was that they were the right words. And ostensibly, they were aware of how courts had interpreted them and thought that was okay because otherwise they would have done something different. And the court said, seems to, the minority seems to suggest that this also imports intent, right? And so the intent of the US legislators in writing the law is also relevant because they're the same words, right? 
you might say that's not always the case because you know you might think the provision is good without thinking what Thomas Jefferson thought was right but in that specific case it makes sense for the reasons that I've said and the minority says well it doesn't make sense as a matter of statutory interpretation to have this distinction higher life forms should be potentially patentable not be subject to this blanket exclusion the majority made up why is that it's not in the act as i said the only thing that's in the act the only exclusion that's in the act as a broad principle is the scientific principle or theorem right and as a result right the other ones are not so a higher lower life form and professional arts these are not written down in the act they were interpreted by the court there, there are exceptions that were invented right not really invented because they were as a result of the interpretation of what was in the act right it basically you know enunciated by the courts and the majority says this is not in the act the higher life form thing is not in the act and when you're trying to say that it's not new because the mice have procreated that's a very thin distinction you're trying to find words there that are not there to invent an exclusion that is not there and that's not what courts do the court says that's not legitimate because it's not written down you're you're really inventing something that's not there that's not your job as a judge of the majority of the Supreme Court and right that's bad because right you don't have the expertise to do that you don't have the legitimate the the, the democratic legitimacy to do that right so the court says it's not written in the act and it's not a direct result of these principles in fact these principles were used by the majority to create a new distinction by reading something that is not there and the courts the, the minority says that because you know essentially because the provision is the same as the US and in the US the mouse was potentially patentable and that's true in all the other countries which are listed at paragraph 2 that have adopted this very same um, this very same you know legislative text then paragraph 4 court says something interesting and again even though you might even though what the minority concludes from this is not the law because they're not in the majority right the principles remain true right the, the policy underpinnings remain true paragraph 4 the court says right this is also about innovation this is about people the court says right further advancing the frontiers of knowledge by standing on the on the shoulders of those who have come before who have gone before court says right this is important because we invent things such that further things are invented and human society moves forward and having this blanket exclusion is not going to serve that it's going to do the opposite it's going to make it such that people don't invent the harvard mouse because they won't make money with it so they won't pour 10 million dollars into a lab to come up with it and second right if people invent it they won't tell us because they're worried someone's going to steal their secret and make all the money in their stead and as a result right it's bad to have this blanket exclusion from the majority because it doesn't fuel innovation in fact it gets people to hide what they found and the court the, the minority right gets as close to you know saying the majority is dumb and illegitimate by saying right my colleagues contention is that the onco mouse is a composition of matter as i said but then that mystically gets you know through procreation and is no longer invention the courts calls it a, comp a composition of genetic matter plus something else undefined so the court says you made it up right you made it up to have this distinction because you didn't want higher life forms like mice and human beings to be potentially patentable and the court's going to say right this is pretty messed up because right first it doesn't really differ from what we've looked at before a seed is the same thing you change the genetic makeup and you have a new type of thing that is alive and that is commercially useful monsanto invents seed and they can prevent anyone from using them without paying them and in fact in the same way as the mouse they can quote unquote procreate right 
most Monsanto can prevent you from using a seed that was created as a result of their seed that's not the one you bought. That's also forbidden because they have, as we said, a monopoly which includes what comes after if it's the same thing. So the court says, the minority, sorry, says this is all wrong because it's not different. The mouse is not different. Seeds procreate. There's miracles there as well. And they have the same, the same way. They're created in the same way by altering the genetic makeup. And they have the same characteristics. They are new, useful, and non-obvious. And therefore, saying that the mouse is different makes no sense. Because it's the same as a genetically modified seed. And in fact, it's more useful because you're curing cancer instead of making better bananas. And then the court says, right, the majority said this weird thing with, uh, the minority says, the majority got this wrong because they said it wasn't contemplated when the act was written, right? So in the 1800s, right, when the legislators came up with these ideas in the U.S., right, they didn't think there would be a genetically modified mouse. And the court rightly says, in fact, you might have thought that before the court, the, the minority said it, right? The minority said, and again, I shouldn't say the court, it's the minority. We're still in the dissent. We, we will be for this week, right? The minority says, this is bizarre. In fact, nothing was contemplated, right? They didn't contemplate computers, which were patentable, or seeds, or, you know, fake bananas, or new bananas, or kiwis, which are protectable, any more than they contemplated the Harvard mouse. And that's an absurd argument. And I think the court's correct to say that. Then the court gets into the money. The court says two things, right? First, the most important thing in society is bioinnovation, saving lives, finding cures for cancers, finding new pills, you know, whatever it is, right? The court says this is important because it's, it, it has the most significant social outcomes, positive social outcomes. And the court says that's tremendously expensive. The court says right, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to invent drugs sometimes, and therefore we have to have strong protection. And alive things, right, have the same potential as biotechnology, as drugs and other things. They're likely to be just as expensive, as, if not more, and therefore we need this innovation. And the way we get it is by giving people money, by giving companies money, by giving them a monopoly. And if you're saying that it's not protected, right, by virtue of that exclusion, you're walling that off. You're preventing that commercial monopoly from being allocated. And as a result, you're either making it such that people don't invent it in the first place, or when they invent it, keep it secret because they're worried it's going to be stolen from them. And the court cites, right, Professor Gould of, um, of McGill University. He says, right, the court cites that approvingly, the, the minority cites that approvingly, says the argument for greater patent protection should be understood for what it is, an attempt to maximize profit, not levels of innovation. In other words, right, we don't say that you inventing a drug for cholesterol is worth hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. In fact, I think it's worth $75 billion, right? We're not saying, right, you inventing a drug for cholesterol changes life so much we want you to have $75 billion. In fact, $1 billion might have done, right? That's $1,000 million. That's a pretty good reason for someone to invent something. It's in the aggregate, the court says, right? As a system for drugs, people are not going to invent them if they don't make that much money. Because that drug for cholesterol is going gonna, is gonna to be so many times, uh, such a multiple of your investment, that it's going to be worth it for you to throw your money around later on into things that are less likely to work or are more expensive because you're sure that when you strike it right, you're going to make so much money that it's going to pay for all of it and more. And the court cites that approvingly. And in fact, court says, paragraph 25, as I said, right, crudely, but very, very morally, right, with a, a morally righteous stance, the court says, nevertheless, it's indisputable that vast amounts of money must be found to finance biomedical research. It's necessary to feed the goose 
if it is if it is to continue to lay the golden eggs. That's paragraph 25. And therefore, right, we shouldn't have an exclusion that's going to prevent that. That's going to prevent all these beautiful things insofar as they concern things that the majority has arbitrarily said are too alive, are too sentient, and as a result are completely and wholly without the realm of patent protection. And the court, of course, repeats many times, right, that other things are protectable, whether they be seeds or yeasts, right, that are alive, but that the majority says are different because somehow they're not higher life forms. And then the court says, again, at paragraph 35, something that's essentially, right, this, this, as close as they get to saying, screw you to the majority, right, the minority says, you're couching that as statutory interpretation. You're saying that you found the meaning of new and non-obvious such that you found that sentient things were not protected. But that's a lie. In fact, what you did, right, is you restricted the definition artificially. You made up a restriction that is bad for the reason I just for the reasons I just covered, for policy reasons, and that's important, unrelated to the Patents Act. You made it up. It was your political preference or you know, you made it up and it wasn't there and it shouldn't have been there. And that's unrelated to the Patents Act or its legitimate role and function. And that's also, of course, as close as we get to seeing how judicial opinions and common law systems are rhetorical devices, right? The reasons the opinion is so long, the reason it looks at what the intent of the act is, what the policy considerations are, Right? The reason for that is because courts don't just say what things are. They find what things are. They interpret. And therefore, there's more than one possible interpretation. And as a result, they have to convince you. Courts have a rhetorical role in the common law in trying to tell you not just what things are, but why they're right. Why their interpretation, why what they found is correct. And that's why the court says, right, this is wrong, this is unreal, and says it in a way that's theatrical to convince the reader.